Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey there, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. This week's episode features Fiona Styles. She is the owner of Reed Clark and also a very talented makeup artist. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Joy Harari. She's the founder and CEO of Shore Magic. Hope you enjoy the shows. Hey, everybody. I'm so excited to be here with Fiona Stiles. She is a very talented makeup artist. She's also the owner of Reed Clark. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I've been such a fan for a long time, so it's pretty exciting. This has been, um, I think, for sure, over a year in the making, maybe Easily. even two years in the making, um, that we've been friends over Instagram. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm so glad that finally Zoom brings us together. And a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I was originally supposed to come during Met Ball was when we had scheduled the in-person mm-hmm. podcast. So, yeah, a pandemic brought us, finally, our schedules merged. So um, let's talk about life during this crisis. Um, we just um, got you out of um, a session teaching um, school yes. to your child, right? So right now you're a part-time teacher and part-time entrepreneur and full-time everything. Yeah. Tell me what, what life has been like for you. I mean, it's the same for so many people. I, I um, you know, we spent decades honing our skills and then we're thrown into the role. The most, one of the most important roles in our kids' lives is to be a teacher and and uh, I'm pretty sure we're all woefully unprepared. I did not know how hard second grade math was. <laughs> and also, not just that it's hard, but that it was taught wildly differently when I learned it at her age. And so I've had to learn how to not only uh, teach her, but how to actually teach in the way that they are being taught. So it's, it's super challenging. I, uh, um, when my son went through second grade math, I actually had to go and like get tutored by the teacher. I went early to school one day and sure. she sat down and explained it to me because it's completely different. The language of it is different. The thought process is different. It's cool, but it's yeah. so different. It, there, it's cool because there's more ways to get to one answer, but it, it, anyway, it's just very challenging, especially for someone who went to art school. Like I really <laughs> haven't done math in a super long time. <laughs> And part of me loves it, and part of me feels very grateful for this time and figuring out what kind of a learner she is and what her strengths and stretches are. Um, but it is it is a whole new set of of skills that I need to hone, and it has challenges. I can't, I can't. I'm sorry, I can't remember to do anything. Like I thought this was Pacific time, and yeah, it's it's, it's very hard to keep schedules. How have you been trying to organize yourself, like, between work and school, like, your daughter's schoolwork and, you know, other needs for your child? Um, It's very hard not having a calendar that I look at every day. This is very challenging for me. And I'm used to a a paper notebook. Like, I like a, a proper a proper schedule, but it's mostly empty. So looking (laughs) at it, it's a little depressing and I'm finding scheduling very challenging. Um, Other than that, I wake up at five Monday through Friday to work on Reed Clark before um, school starts and before I start getting everything prepped for the day. And then uh, when she's done with school at about 2.30 or 3, well, I give her an extra half hour with me at the end of school where I'm nice to her. (laughs) Like, Like mom time, not teacher time. So we try and do something fun and play for a little while so that the teacher 
leaves and the mom comes back and we can have some quality time. And then I try and work from three to six on my business. When are you going to bed at night to wake up at five every day? Later than I should. Um, I'm super sucked into the great on Hulu right now. So I don't go to bed till like 11, which is really tough for getting up at five, but I can't stop watching that show. It's so good. So you said that you um, always had a paper calendar, like a book, like yes, a philo fact, what do we call it? Mm-hmm. What do we call it? Date book? Deepa, Deepa. <laughs> yeah. So um, now that it's not stacked with places to be, um, do you find that like there's a sort of um, effect, like the less you do, the less you do, like because you're not like stacked with your schedule day after day? Is that why it's harder to schedule things because you're not like as as um, crunched in that schedule? I think because everything is happening in the same place. I don't have to actually physically go anywhere or be anywhere. It's like, yes, I have to do X, Y, Z. I feel like I've actually, I'm busier now because I'm so in charge of everything happening in the house um, with my, because I decided to take on teaching solely. It felt like it would be less uh, confusing. Um, But I don't have to actually be anywhere at any time. So... I have a harder time when it comes to, you know, actually scheduling specific blocks of time. I tend to get everything done and I'm quite a good taskmaster. It's just time is very fluid and I find it very challenging to pin down. Well, let's talk about time because you said this, um, you said this thing to me on our intake call that I thought was so interesting and it was about, um, you called yourself like a day, day worker or something. What was the the language you used? Uh, uh, yeah, it's like a, a, a day player, day player. right? Like, I don't know what, now, I don't, most of the time, I don't know what I'm doing two days from now. Um, now I know exactly what I'm doing two days from now. <laughs> it's the same thing I did yesterday. But, um, but th- that's, it makes us very fluid, but it also is hard to um, section your life into periods because everything feels so different, but also so much the same. Okay, so tell me, In like, explain to someone who's not a makeup artist um, mm. what, what this means to be a day player. T- tell me what it's like to kind of live this in this world every day, week to week, month to month. Sure. So um, my happy place would be knowing exactly what I was doing every single day for a month out so that I could really plan my life. But that's not how our industry works. Often jobs come in the day before, two days before. You may have a few things that you get to plan um, a month out, but... But for the most part, things come in very quickly. And I guarantee anytime you buy a plane ticket for a vacation or put some sort of money forward for personal time, you will get a large, important job during that time you'll have to cancel. Be it a wedding, a birth, um, it doesn't matter. Like the the more important, the more likely you're going to get booked on that day. It's just Murphy's Law has a very strong hold in our industry. And um, it makes planning your life very challenging. Okay, so let's talk about that because you've been doing this for many years. Mm. Um, what what is life like really when you're looking to achieve personal time? Are you making Are you really making decisions about livelihood versus friendships or livelihood? One hundred percent. Well, we don't know. Here's the thing about being a freelance makeup artist or hairdresser or stylist or whatever. We don't know when our next paycheck is coming. We don't know when the next job is coming other than what's on the books. And it all can disappear like it has with the pandemic. My calendar was wiped clean indefinitely, right? There is no date where we're coming back. We have no idea when we can actually return to work. And um, 
I'm sorry, I also have a very hard time right now pinning down thoughts. Um, so can you please tell me your question again? I'm telling you, I, I, my mind is like a sieve. Well, I want to understand, like, you know, someone in your field, are you really making decisions between livelihood and important family vacations or livelihood and family events or, you yes. know, friends events? So if someone said to you, they would give you, I'm just going to throw a, an obscene number out there. They would send you, uh, they would pay you $10,000 to miss your dad's 80th birthday. What are you going to do? Well, what's you're you going to take the money. Yeah, you're going to take, take the money mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you don't know when your next check is. And and the other thing is, um, some days you get paid a very small amount of money or free. You work for free. Um, like an editorial is often a very nominal fee um, or there is no fee. So you work with your client. You work for the opportunity. You work with the photographer. You're not working for that paycheck. But then, then your next job might be an advertising job, and it's an, a substantial amount of money. So it all sort of evens out. People think, oh, we have this amazing, glamorous life where we make all this money. Well, some days we make zero money. And sometimes we don't see that money for three months, six months, nine months. I mean, there have been times where I haven't been paid for a year. So it's a very challenging way to plan your life, and things are very unpredictable. And what I was referring to as a day player is you just don't know where you're headed. And um, I've been doing this for 25 years and I'm still thrilled when I get a really good job because you just, you, there's no stability to it. So it's, um, you have to have a lot of tenacity and you have to have a lot of faith in, in your ability and in, in the industry. And then when something like COVID happens and everything is pulled out from underneath you, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of shocking. So tell me all the reasons why you love being a professional makeup artist. Mm, you bet. Um, even though sometimes I fantasize about being someone who sits and files papers all day <laughs> because it's very finite, um, the freedom and, and unpredictability of our job, which is double-sided, is the most exciting part, is that you don't know what your next job is. It could be incredibly glamorous or fabulous, or it could just be like going to someone's house and doing their makeup. But um, there is a, a, a sense of wonder to the unknown about it. And I also love the challenge of working with the same person over and over again. So I have some clients that I've been working with for over 10 years. And to work on the same face repeatedly and get to know them so intimately and the mapping of their features and to try and make them look different over and over again is a really wonderful exercise. Um, I love working with creative teams. I think that doing makeup on myself in my house would be a nightmare because I love bouncing ideas off the hairdresser and references with the stylist and this beautiful alchemical um, connection that happens between all of us as a team when we create something really special. That is lovely. And, I, and there are very few jobs where you get that. So how are you filling that um, void right now during COVID, like that collaboration, that community, that sense of play and artistry? It's challenging. Um, I try and channel some of that into schooling and trying to find interesting ways to teach my daughter. I've just started following a ton of embroidery uh, po um, feeds on Instagram because I think needlework is very peaceful. Um, I've been sewing masks and I, I mean, I hadn't used my sewing machine in 15 years or something. So I'm, we're gonna make doll clothes. I'm really channeling it all into my kid. <laughs> 
And now it's, uh, I'm focusing on how to make like the best home summer camp ever. And baking. Oh, well, can you make like a video tutorial about making a great home summer camp? If I had the time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too busy planning the best summer camp ever. I actually like got really anxious a couple of weekends ago and it was not productive about like, what are my kids doing for the summer? What are they doing for the summer? Yeah. Um, and I, it was giving me so much anxiety because for whatever reason, I felt like I had to solve that problem in that moment, which I didn't, you know, and I don't, no. um, but I was getting really, um, kind of wound up about it because like I'm working and I work a lot now and my husband works a lot now and, yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't want them on screens all day, every day. And I know there's going to be some days where it just is that way and I'll accept that, but I can't accept, you know, five days a week of that, um, all summer. So I was really working myself up about it. And then I just like gave it up and I'm like, I don't need to solve this today. I can solve this another day. I think it's hard for people who have a type personalities. I like to say that I have like a B plus type personality. Um, I'm not quite as like intense as some people, but I can be pretty intense. I think it's hard for us to not be able to solve all these problems. And we're used to solving problems, but this is like a whole new thing for us, you know, and I need a plan and I need a system and trying to systemize all this is very challenging. Yeah. So let's, um, let's go back in time when, when things were yeah. a little simpler. To the before time? I yeah, let, the before time. Let's talk about you going to art school. Sure. Why did you go uh, to art school? I always really enjoyed art and um, was not the most academic kid. Uh, it was also like the 70s, you know, so no one was really paying attention much. And that's fine. You know, I had working parents and they did the best that they could. But um, art is where I felt comfortable. And I ended up going to the Rhode Island School of Design to study fine art photography and really thrived in this um, arena of misfits and um, self-expression. It was just so much fun. It was truly like the best four years of my life. And, you know, I got a lot done, but it was also just a very freeing experience to go to college with a bunch of kids who just wanted to make weird stuff. I mean, that's basically my job, right? Like I work with the arty kids who want to make weird stuff, but we just use people as our campuses. So I think when I was in like high school, it was, yeah, my art class, it was like fringe, right? Like it was, um, you know, I I guess I always felt on their fringe, so I felt like I belonged there, but uh, all these other people who felt like they didn't belong anywhere else, like came to art. Do you, is this still the same way in like schools today? Oh, I have no idea. I don't know. I I can't really speak to that. I have have an eight-year-old, so they all like art. And they're all they're right. All I just wonder if like things have sort of like evolved where yeah, everybody can like art. I almost think that I'm 44. I almost think that like when I went to high school, like you couldn't like art if you were X Y Z. Like everyone was sort of put into this like um, mold that they had to you know stay in. Right. Um, I mean, I, I hope I hope people are a little more accepting and that there are not such rigid like John Hughes boundaries. I never went to a school that was like jocks and nerds, and you know we it was. It was a private school, so everybody was really quite um, gentle, you know what I mean? And uh, the school I send my kid to, I love because she went to an upper school basketball game recently in the before times. And 
during the halftime show, like some science kids came out and did a science experiment. And then some drama kids came out and did some theater. And I was like, this is great. <laughs> this is exactly what I want. I want the blurring of boundaries. I want art kids to love math. And I want science kids to love sports. And I just feel like everybody should be able to dip their toe in every pedagogy and every category and not feel like they have to be pigeonholed into these archaic um, ideas of what it is to be a person. That's so awesome. I want to go to that school. That sounds right. So cool. I would like to go to that school. I would like to trade places. <laughs> she can stay home and teach and I'm going to go to her school. So, um, okay. How did you find your way into makeup, right? You went to um, school for photography. Right. So I always dabbled in makeup, but back then it was not really, I mean, it was certainly not in the public consciousness the way it is now. I mean, everybody knows what a makeup artist is and, and I certainly didn't. I associated it with the opera and maybe movies and special effects, but, and even though I have always read fashion magazines, it just didn't maybe dawn on me that it was like an actual job. And I went to New York City after I graduated from college and literally fell into it and then never looked back. It just felt it just felt right and it made sense and I felt confident in that space and um, and I feel really fortunate to be where I am. But it was also a lot of hard work and some luck and good timing. So tell me what it took. Um, what was it like in the beginning? There was no Google, which I always mention. <laughs> there weren't home computers, really. I mean, none of, maybe I knew a couple of people who had them, but it was really like... You just had to figure it out. You had to be scrappy and persistent. And um, I remember looking through the yellow pages for modeling agencies so that I could reach out to them, but they're not in the yellow pages. You have to know their names and go to the white pages. And for anybody who is not in my age demographic, the, these used to be books with all of the phone numbers of places that existed in your city. <laughs> they're very large books. Um, so I would just... I finally figured out the names of a couple of modeling agencies and found them in the white pages. And I would read the credits in, in fashion magazines. And I ended up just calling the artists at home and seeing if I could be their assistants. I was scrappy. You just, I figured it out. But, you know, the kids today, they've got the Googles and they've got the YouTubes and they've got access to these incredible artists and can really learn where I was looking at books and magazines and trying to figure it out. Hey everybody, it's Jody. I know I'm interrupting this great podcast, but I do have an important message and it concerns the legal health of your business. I just did a recording recently with Steve Wagler of Emerge Council, and he taught me so much about um, how important it is to trademark your business the proper way. And he actually met me um, when he was considering starting his own brand. And what I didn't realize at the time was that he's an expert in brand protection and he represents a number of small and even huge beauty brands. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you need to listen to this episode, but I would say that some of the most important ones are policing the market against counterfeiters. Like this is a huge thing in our industry right now. Um, protecting the secrecy of product formulations, having strong, protectable brand names and unique packaging enforcing MAP pricing policies and distribution channels and documenting terms and conditions 
and all the really important stuff, even influencer marketing, like everything like needs to be protected. So um, I really like Steve, his episodes full of really important information. And Steve is a lawyer and he understands that legal stuff can sometimes be a drain or a bore, but it's so important for the health of your business. So please call Steve. He offers a free initial consult, which I think is really great. Get to know him. He wants to get to know your business. And please tell him that I sent you. So you can go to EmergeCouncil.com, E-M-E-R-G-E-C-O-U-N-S-E-L.com, or call Steve at 1-800-EMERGE-0. So that's 1-800-E-M-E-R-G-E-0, which is a very cool phone number. And ask for Steve. Um, we have to protect the legal health of our business as much as we protect our distribution and our innovation. So this is really important stuff. So back then, was the coveted role like being someone's assistant, like their consistent assistant? Is that the, the job you were hoping to get? Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't even know what job I was hoping to get. I knew nothing. I had no idea how it worked. Zero. And I ended up landing... Um, uh, an opportunity to work with Pat McGrath when she was still living in London. So she wasn't here full time. So when she was in New York, I was her assistant, but most of the time she was in London. So um, I didn't have the first assistant position that you would normally have where you're working every single day. But when she was in town, I was her first. So it was uh, a really incredible time to be working with someone, especially when I was so young and seeing everyone at the absolute top of their game and being in that environment, I'm sure I was not the best assistant. I didn't really know the protocol, and I'm probably horrified uh, when I think back on it, but I, I did the best I could, and I really wanted to be there. <laughs> do you and get, it was amazing. Do you get calls from um, aspiring makeup artists to be your assistant? I get a lot of DMs, and let me give a little word of advice. And this is not just if you want to be a makeup artist. This is um, for anything in life. And I think there is a lot of informality in our world currently with how you can access people. You don't have to write a former, a formal cover letter. You can, you know, get into someone's DMs instantly. Um, use full sentences, please. And full words. Uh, this is your first impression, right? Like that old adage, you only get a first chance to make, we only get one chance to make a first impression. And when someone says, lowercase do, letter U, need an assistant, I delete them. Because if that person can't take the time to write me a full sentence, I can't imagine what their set etiquette will be like. So um, I have definitely hired assistants from DMs. Um, again, persistence and uh, tenacity goes a long way. If someone keeps reaching out to me, I take notice, but generally I'll, I'll pass their information along to my agent and then, um, let them sort of filter stuff out. Right. So the same skills that you needed to thumb through the, the white pages or find the names of these Molly agencies. I mean, it's the same skill set now. The medium is different, yes. but that idea of being persistent and consistent and, yes. um, I guess the balance between like being annoying and being persistent. Yes. Is important well, you too. can be politely persistent, right? Um, there does seem to be a little bit of an attitude of like people are owed something. And that's not the case. Like I don't owe you a DM back if you can't write me a full sentence. So, um, but if you are kind and thoughtful and polite, I will write back to you for sure. 
Well, let's um let's move ahead because you are a woman of many talents, and not only are you a makeup artist, but you also have formulated your own products. I did right, and you also own a really cool online store called Reed Clark. I so, um, when did you this um sort of entrepreneurial bug um, bite you to start venturing out beyond your um, daily makeup artistry? Right. Well, so the unpredictability of my industry makes it very hard to be an entrepreneur because it's very hard to to commit to the time you need to. Um, I mean, it takes a lot of time to run another business. It's a full time job to run another business, and then to have a full time job doing something else, and then to also be a parent is a a, a pretty big struggle. Um, I I guess I've always wanted to do something outside of makeup. And then it sort of struck me one day that I wanted to be able to have a place where people could find very interesting things that they may not be able to find. I've been fortunate to live in New York City for a long time and to live in Los Angeles. And there are a lot of very cool things that you can find here. But that's not the case for everywhere. And when I started Reed Clark six years ago, um, it was still a little bit... Uh, things were still a little bit more underground for finding small independent brands and underground products. And since then it's, it's definitely become a lot more um, uh, top of mind for people. But back then it was, it was really hard to find a lot of the things I carried. And that's what I like about it. I like it that it's a little special treat that people get to find. But finding like cool things um, and curating cool things is not enough of a reason to start a whole business. So like, you know, <laughs> what, what really it's motivated not? you to say, like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this happen. Well, you want a little stability in life, right? Like the, in, a, in a job where you have zero control over your life schedule, trajectory, um, whether or not someone wants to book you, whether or not you're going to um, get that big job, you want to have some sort of a, a foothold. And that's really what having another business was. And I had tried in New York to have like an eyebrow business out of my apartment or just doing something else for when there's downtime or for when um, you feel like you need a little extra cash. But having something that was mine and mine alone, it feels good. And it's something I'm in control of uh, when there's very little control in my job. Right. That makes sense. So what about the, um, the product line? Did that give you a sense of control? That was a partnership, and I was the creative director of the line. I, I developed every single product. I think we started with 123 SKUs. Oh, my gosh. That's enormous. It was huge. It just was out of the gate huge. Um, it was such an incredible opportunity, and I found it also wildly challenging as the creative person in a very business-oriented business. Um, and also someone who... Um, perfection is a is a is a very important quality and goal if things weren't perfect I found it very upsetting and um there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen and there's also like a lot of expenses so you need to figure out what's going to be the most important thing and sometimes it was I couldn't get the color exactly how I wanted it which felt devastating sometimes no one else noticed <laughs> but um it was, a, it was a terrific learning process. I learned so much from it. Um, I wish the opportunity would come again in a much smaller format uh, and in a much more independent way. And I do often fantasize about just taking my love and passion for Reed Clark and turning that into a small product line. 
Um, but that was another full-time job that was on top of two other full-time jobs. So is that brand of products um, gone now? It is no longer in production. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty short-lived, which was also disappointing and heartbreaking because I, I think that where we are, and maybe in the aftertime or our current time, things will slow down a little bit. But things were so breakneck that if you weren't an instant success, there was no time to grow or room for error or happy accidents um, if you if you just didn't crush it immediately, then you were sort of pushed to the side. And that's not, I don't think that's healthy for a business model, you know? Right. Well, that would be um, pretty indicative of the experience most small brands would have with like um, a retail partner, right? Yes. Once you, once you um, sort of enter this work with third party wholesale, yes. like there's demands on you. Um but if you're willing to play the slow game and you do direct-to-consumer or you sell yes. your products on Amazon, then you get the chance to be in more control, right? Yes. Um, yes. With fewer expenses. Obviously, it still costs a ton to market a brand. But um, eliminating that third party gives you control of the timeline. Yes. If I, if I was given the opportunity again, I would 100% do direct-to-consumer and, and avoid a big box store. It was fatal. Sadly. Right. Right. And you know that uh, you're not the only brand that experiences that. We hear that story really often. It's, it yeah. does seem like for entrepreneurs, um, the, I guess, misconception is that entering a Sephora or a Saks or Ulta yeah. or a Target is like, you know, the holy grail. It's like, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fix everything and be amazing. And the reality is it costs so much to do business with those players yes. and to support those business and to drive traffic. Um, and you're right. Like if you don't, if you're not producing fast enough, they're going to kick you out. Well, they don't have the room for low performers, right? That's right. Um, so it really can be the death blow to a brand. Yeah, I remember uh, um, obsessive compulsive cosmetics, which was a great little brand. They had a little shop down um, on the Lower East Side. Their products were phenomenal. Their colors were great. The formulations were amazing. And they went into Sephora, and it and then they disappeared. They couldn't it just killed the brand and that just makes me so sad um i think it's such a flooded market you need time to discover your people your tribe the people that love what you do and if you don't do it in six months to be to be sidelined is is really hard it's really hard but it was truly like going to college very quickly like doing like four years in like 60 days. I learned so much. And for that, I'll forever be grateful. Yeah, I see like, um, you know, making what people call mistakes. It's like um, the cost of doing business. Like you have to you have to do that to be able to learn from it and then do other things. Right. It's, right. You can't go from point A to point B in a straight line. It doesn't happen. Right. And I hope that these are also lessons I can teach my daughter and pass on to her that resiliency is important, that just because something doesn't work doesn't mean you're a failure, that you can take these beautiful life lessons for something that was very painful and hard to go through. And it, if you don't get to do it again, at least you are a stronger person with a greater um, book of experiences. It's so interesting that you mentioned that, Fiona, because when I um, have a work challenge, I like typically would beat myself up about it quite a bit, yeah. right? I, I would have, I should have, I could have. And... Um, 
the advice I often get from other people is, well, how would you talk to your kids about that if they, if they went through that? I would never, ever, ever be like, you, you could have, you should have, you know, like, that's right. I, like never in a million years. So I started to learn how to talk to myself the way I talk to my kids. Right. Um, and be like, okay, well, you did it. That's cool. You know, it happened. Now it's over. Um, you learn stuff, met people. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm learning how to be kind. It's a good lens to look through life, you know, the, the lens of being a parent. Yeah, it's been super helpful for me. Well, Fiona, yeah. I'm so glad that we got to do this together. This is so Thank incredible to so finally get to see your much, face this Joy. way. I know. I know. I'm really grateful that... Um, that you made it happen because <laughs> it was all you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you so much, Fiona, for your wisdom today. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.